she says, you know, when your mom would talk about you and say she had this baby in 64, you know, we just listened to her. You know, we didn't know because they couldn't put a face or, you know, they're just listening to her tell this story. So for me to surface was like, you are real. Who am I? 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 This is Who Am I Really? A podcast about adoptees that have located and connected with their biological family members. I'm Damon Davis, and today you'll meet Jennifer. She's a recent transplant to Nashville, but she originally hails from Chicago's Washington Heights on the South Side. Jennifer told me she spent two years in foster care before being placed with her parents, who were somewhat older. She was perfectly comfortable with her adoption until her teen years when her self-awareness was heightened and her desire to learn more about who she is bloomed. Protecting her parents, she pushed away her desire to search for decades until one day her curiosity exploded again. In the end, her residual drive from her experience as a detective on the Chicago police force helped her to keep asking questions and pressing on with her search. This is Jennifer's journey. Jennifer was placed with her family from foster care at two years old. Her adoption was an open topic in her family and in her community, and she felt special because of it. But her teen years brought more self-awareness and therefore more interest in the real meaning of what adoption actually meant for her. I was permanently placed there from foster care. I was in foster care for my first two years. And uh, it was great. You know, I always thought I was special. You know, those words you hear, chosen. And I never felt like that was a bad thing. I thought that was a pretty cool thing. Um, and everyone knew. Like, I, I don't ever remember, like, being sat down and told you're adopted, you know? Right. So it was, um, yeah, it was something that was just kind of known to me and to everybody, you know? So it was in the family. Like, there was no secret about that. Mm -hmm. And even in my neighborhood, yeah, even in... You know, even in the neighborhood, people knew, and it wasn't a bad thing. You know, I just never felt that way. Now, I don't know what people were talking about, you know, amongst themselves, but for me, mm -hmm. it was a good thing. I think around adolescence, though, I began to wonder, you know, like, how this different, um, I guess, uh, status, how that what that really meant, you mm -hmm. know, what did it really mean to be separated from my birth family, you know? Right. And I, I do remember thinking that and maybe this isn't so cool, you know, <laughs> like, mm -hmm. like, like other people look like each other because they're biologically related. And so if I look like someone in my family, it was just like happenstance, you know, mm -hmm. because I wasn't biologically related and I did, you know, it was interesting. I looked like my first cousins, like we look alike. Mm -hmm. And so people would say, oh, I knew that was your cousin because you didn't <laughs> look alike. But, yeah. you know, of course, I know that it's not because we're related by blood, you know. Right. Jennifer's parents were born in the early 20th century, her father in 1916, her mother in 1924. So they were older parents, almost like grandparents to Jennifer. Usually people tell me their parents were of a certain childbearing age at the time of their adoption. I asked Jennifer if she knew why her parents adopted her when they were older. 
I think uh, there was some ambivalence um, about it on my from my dad. I think that he that was not what you did. I know I remember there was a story told to me that my dad said, well, first of all, my mother could not conceive. So that was always a, a point of contention because she wanted a baby. She wanted, you know, to have children. And um, her friends were having babies. And and so this was a big deal to her. Mm-hmm. And I think that she wanted to adopt sooner. But my dad was kind of like, nah, you know, black folks don't do that. You know, <laughs> like, yeah. like I remember a story being told to me that, that he said, you know, well, so-and-so down south, you know, a cousin or some relative had a baby that they, you know, really can't take care of. Why don't we just take care of that, you know, make that baby our, our baby? And my mother was not for that because she felt that that cousin or that family member may come back in the picture and want their baby. And mm-hmm. so she didn't feel comfortable. So I guess time was going by and, you know, between her and my dad, they were just trying to figure that out. And I, I don't know, I guess maybe he just gave in. I don't know. <laughs> but <laughs> I think that that's why it was so much later. Mm-hmm. I think it was talked about much, you know, when they were younger. Jennifer was the only child in her family, and her parents drove her to be a strong woman. Her father was a janitor in the public school system, but he was a people person, a traveler, and always read the newspaper to stay in touch with the world around him. Her mother was a librarian whose love for books drove Jennifer's strength in reading. She says in her teen years, looking like the others in her family wasn't really an issue for her. Her mother was dark-complected, and her father was light in skin color, and Jennifer's skin tone was in between the two of them. But her teen years and the increased emotional awareness kids get around that time exacerbated Jennifer's curiosity about the differences she had noticed between herself and her family. I do remember um, pre-adolescence, adolescence, really kind of uh, that rebellious uh, age where I started to think, you know, I am different from from my family. You know, th- th- there's some stuff going on where I'm different, and I'd like to know why. You know, I remember feeling like that. Mm-hmm. Kind, kind of like an edginess, you know. Was it like starting to see differences in how you think about the world and they think about the world and approaches to sort of life issues or was it other stuff? I think it was, I remember I was a tomboy and I remember just thinking, you know, I'm not identifying with the things my mother likes, you know, like I'm not, I feel like, like there's a lot that's different about her. But at the same time I was thinking, well, I'm just my own person yeah. You know, I, I kind of just, yeah, rationalize, you know, I am a teenager, you know, and teenagers don't really think like their parents, you know, I kind of put it away like that. But as I got older and I, like, now when I think back, what I was really feeling was, yeah, I'm different. There's something about my nature that's different. Mm-hmm. What did you do with those feelings about starting to really recognize, hey, this is more than just me being a teenager. This is fundamental differences in me and the people around me. Tucked it away. Hmm. Just really put it put it in the back yeah, background. I I think, you know, my life has been pretty full, meaning just, you know, from high school to college to, you know, working, you know, my career and then a family and, and it just feels like it's just been nonstop in so many ways. 
And so maybe when a thought would pop up, I would just kind of put it down. And I will say a lot of it had to do with the fact that I knew my birth, I mean, my adoptive mom didn't want me to search. Oh, is that right? Like I knew, yeah, yeah. Like she didn't want to talk, want me to talk about it. So it was never really talked about. Um, the search. Whatever feelings adoption. I might have are quite. Yeah, the, the, well, both, I guess. I mean, I remember asking her, you know, what did she think about? I might have been a teenager. I said, what did she think about me searching? And she said, why would you want to do that? You know, you have your family. and So it was just really taboo. Mm. The whole topic was taboo. And so I never wanted her to feel like I was unappreciative, you know, or, you know, didn't, was unhappy, you know, like, that's what it seemed like it meant to her that I must be unhappy or I must not, you know, feel good about this family, you know, which yeah. is none of that. So Jennifer buried her feelings for a long time. It wasn't until many years after her mother passed away in 2002 that the feelings came back. Her natural and career trained curiosity for asking probing questions kicked in, as well as her desire to fill out her son's family tree from her side of the family. Years after she passed that, it just, it hit me like, what are you waiting for? Mm -hmm. You know, because I am a naturally curious person. You know, I was a detective my last 16 years uh, with the police department. And I, that was what I did, you know, ask questions, probe, you know, dig and dig and investigate, you know. So here I am, you know, putting this off after all that time. Yeah. You did it as a career for everyone but yourself. Yeah, exactly. But when the time came, it was on. It was like just really something when I finally said, let's do this. And I think my son, because he was around 20 at the time, it really started to hit me that his tree was really not balanced, his family tree. You know, he had his dad's whole biological piece, but he didn't have mine. And somehow that just didn't feel right. So Jennifer contacted an Illinois agency that provides adoptees guidance on how to do a search. They recommended she obtain a copy of her adoption decree and recommended she wait a little while because the adoption records laws in the state were about to change in her favor. Still, she knew she could be accumulating information about herself prior to Illinois' adoption records being opened. She found out what hospital she was born in, what agency assisted with her adoption, and other information. The adoption decree had her birth name redacted, but the Chicago Child Care Society was listed as the assisting agency and is still open today. They prepared a non-identifying report for her for $100. The information in the report was invaluable to Jennifer because it allowed her to connect with parts of her past. So all of this is going on prior to the law changing where I can request my original birth certificate. Okay. And all of this information is actually very valuable. I mean, it's like more than an OBC can give you, you know. Mm-hmm. So, none of, yeah, none of that was in vain, you know, as I waited for the law to change. Yeah. What kinds, of, what, what kinds of stuff did you learn in that document? Well, the agency, the hospital, I learned um, the Salvation Army Hospital is where I was delivered, which mm-hmm. was actually a home for unwed or pregnant uh, mothers. And so I learned that my birth mother had gone there to stay, you know, and give birth. I learned um, that's a that was a hospital on the north side of Chicago. And so my birth mom was living 
far south. So this mm. was a great big distance, so to speak, from home so that nobody would know what was like where she was or what was going on. Ah. Yeah, and I learned um, what that facility was all about. You know, um, I took a visit to the Salvation Army building. And actually, the building is so much like it was back in the 60s. You know, like walking through, seeing the cafeterias, in the chapel, like all that was set up like that years ago. Mm-hmm. So that was really interesting, yeah, to see that, to see the rooms that the, the girls stayed in, mm-hmm. you know, while they were pregnant. You you took a walk through history, and you, you as an infant, had passed through those hallways. Absolutely. Like, I had, it's funny you would say that, because that's exactly what it was. It was like I had been there before, mm. you know, so I was really revisiting it, because I had been there before. That's yeah. amazing. What an experience. Jennifer was still waiting to get some identifying information. The Chicago Child Care Society was very clear. They could only give Jennifer limited info. Yeah, I hadn't gotten any identifying information. And the Chicago Child Care Society, you know, uh, was quite clear that legally they could only give me bits and pieces. I mean, when they were looking at my file and... In that file is my original birth certificate is, you know, my original, all this information about my birth family. They couldn't give that to me, you know, according to the law. So I remember being very frustrated about that, Mm -hmm. you know, that they're looking at documents that would never be as important to them as as they are to me. And yet having to kind of just get these bits and pieces, you know, and try to put it together. But then I understood. You know, I understood that their hands were tied, yeah. but it still doesn't make you feel any better. No, because it's still documents about you, you know, <laughs> and right. you are well past that point of needing protection as an infant. You're an adult <laughs> with an adult right. child. It's like logic would stand to, it would stand to reason that you should just be able to say, look, here I am. I'm of legal age to basically sign anything. You should be able to hand me that. But their hands are tied, as you've said. So Jennifer started to familiarize herself with and build connections to the adoption community. She started attending conferences like the American Adoption Congress, the AAC, and built relationships with a variety of people that she wished she had bonded with earlier in her life. Just being connected to the adoption community was amazing for me. Um, To be around other adoptees, to be... You know, with a group of people that I hadn't been with, you know, like all my, you know, four decades, I had never really been with that community. And um, it was awesome. You know, my roommate um, was uh, both mom and we're still very close friends to this day. Uh, She allowed me to kind of get a glimpse of what it was like for a birth parent to to um, set up an adoption plan for a child they, you know, gave birth to. Yeah. You know, she carried for nine months, you know, and so I, now I'm getting a better picture along with things I'm reading because the girls that went away by Aunt Fessler was just so healing because here were these birth moms talking about they never were promised anonymity and they, you know, they wanted to reunite, you know, so these were things I had never heard before. So this probably allowed you yeah. a level of empathy that you just hadn't even contemplated you needed going into your search, huh? 
Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That, and you know, if there's anything I could have done sooner, like sooner, sooner would have been a connecting to the adoption community. Mm. You know, if I had been able to do that, even as a teenager, I think it would have been such a good experience. Jennifer told me that connecting to the community was the best thing she could have done for her own healing or coming out of the fog, as we sometimes call it. I wondered if coming out of the fog changed her feelings about her adopted family. She said she's never felt bitter about her adoption, and she fully understands that people make decisions they believe are the best, that everyone won't agree with those decisions, and we all have a choice as to how we elect to view the decisions of others. However, she feels strongly that a person has a right to know who their biological family members are. I asked, what happened next in her search? Well, I, I remember going back to the Chicago Child Care Society and saying, listen, can you please go back to my file and give me just a little something extra, you know? Mm-hmm. And I remember um, they did give me um, some information about my foster family. And, I, and it was kind of interesting because I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. I was two years in, in a foster home, mm-hmm. you know? So then that, I remember that becoming like, Oh, I want to know about them, you know. So when they gave me that information, I was able to locate one of the uh, children. Well, he's an adult now, but at the time he was, I think he was about 12 years old when I was in the house. Anyway, I was able to locate him, and um, they had also given me a picture. Now, this was the first time I'd ever seen a picture of myself younger than two years old. So here I am, six month old, sitting on the lap of, um, this woman that was supposed to be the foster mom, that's who they thought she was. So I take this picture of me at six months to the, to the son. And cause he didn't remember anything about like, a, like a, he really didn't even remember a foster child being in his home. But when he saw the picture of me on his mother's lap, he's like, yeah, that is my mother. Wow. And, um, and yes, yeah, so then he had siblings, so he reached out to a brother who was younger than him, and it turns out that brother remembered me so well because he spent a lot of time with his mom taking care of me. Hmm. And so he was able, yeah, he was able to give me so much information, and uh, I remember that being a big highlight during my search. And so, of course, I was still interested in finding my birth family. So I'm asking them if they knew anything and they didn't know anything, but, you know, wish me well. But that piece was pretty big. In November 2011, Jennifer requested her original birth certificate or OBC from Illinois. She's exhausted all of the non-identifiable leads she could possibly uncover. Then she gets her OBC, reads her original name, and enlists a search angel to help her get more information. They learned that Jennifer's birth mother passed away 16 years prior, but they kept going forward. And what they found brought Jennifer peace. Not really an angel. Um, she, Melissa Mitchell, is, um, and I don't know, maybe she does call herself an angel. She's an angel to me, but she she's a really good searcher. Mm-hmm. Like, if you give her bits and pieces, she can... You know, she's able to use her resources to just really get information for you. So she, like, right away found out that my birth mother had passed. And kind of like me, she's like, well, let's keep moving forward. I want you to go get 
you know, her death certificate so we can get some more information, you know, things like that. Right. And that's what I did. And the long story short is that I found an aunt. And when I connected with her, it, it, oh, wow, it was like, she knew all the time. She like ev- she reached out to my brother. She reached out to her cousin, and everybody had known about my existence. Hmm. And they also knew that my birth mother had been searching for me, but just kept coming up short. And I don't think she would have ever been able to find me because you know my name was changed, and there was no way for her to know what my new name was. You That's know? right. But to to learn that everybody knew about me was so healing for me. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have been surprised if I had been, been a secret, you yeah. know, but it was very healing to know that I wasn't that I, like, it was like I had mattered all these years. Yeah. Yeah. That was pretty cool because they were so glad they were like, wow. You know, cause, cause the way my aunt put it, she says, you know, when your mom would talk about you and say she had this baby in 64, you know, we just listened to her, you know, we didn't know cause they couldn't put a face or, you know, they're just listening to her tell this story. So for me to surface was like, you are real. Like, <laughs> like this is who <laughs> she was talking about all these years. Right. So it was Myth, really healing the legend. for them too. Right. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer says her brother was so happy for her emergence because it was like, a part of the family had returned. In the family, many people passed away at early ages, so Jennifer's appearance for him was like a piece of their mother coming back. She says she sees the family resemblance with her family, noticing elements of her own son in her cousins and her own resemblance to her nieces and nephews. I asked Jennifer about meeting her birth family back in Chicago. So you spoke to your aunt first. It sounds like she sounded the alarm to the family to let everybody know that you had returned. What happened after that? Well, I met everybody and and just kind of wanted to kind of get caught up if there's such a thing, you know, mm-hmm. like like I wanted pictures and they really didn't have many pictures. There were a couple pictures that were shared with me. Um and of course I wanted to know where my mother was buried and um Things like that, you know. Um, so we spent a lot of time just sitting around talking and and um, me telling them about my life, you know. So that was that was pretty good, and, mm. and we still do that, you know. Yeah. So all of this is like tw- the early part of 2012. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so we spent the entire year and the next year in Chicago, just just kind of getting to know one another. Wow, that must have been amazing. I was curious about the story behind why Jennifer was placed into adoption. Her aunt had the most details about the situation, and Jennifer believes her mother, who was opposed to the adoption plan, never got over placing her daughter for adoption. My aunt said that she told her that she was pregnant as a teenager, and um, and her mother, which would be my grandmother, just did not you know, want her to be pregnant as a teenager, you know, mm-hmm. like... How are you going to finish school and what's your life? You know, all of that. Yeah. And so um, basically my grandmother made the plans more so than my grandfather. It was really my grandmother, I was told, that was insistent upon an adoption plan. My birth mother was not at all in agreement with this. Like she was really 
unhappy about it. And mm-hmm. I guess through the years, she never, she never got over it. You know, I think she grieved maybe her whole life about this decision. Yeah, because if she spoke openly about it with the family, it sounds like for years on end, it doesn't sound like she ever really finished grieving for having had to give you away. Exactly. What and did... so my brother is like 22 months younger than me. Mm-hmm. So it was shortly after that she got pregnant again, you know, but she married his father and, you know, carried on and even had another child after my brother who died as an infant. So she kind of got out of whatever grips that was, even at, at 18, you know, as a young adult, um, got from up under that whole thing that, you know, with my grandmother making her give up a baby, you know, yeah. she kind of got, yeah, she just moved on from there. And like I said, I'm not giving up any other babies. And my brother even talked about how he felt she was so protective of him, you know, and, and I'm thinking she probably said, I'm not ever letting another baby go. You know, I'm not going to experience that. Jennifer wasn't able to get any information about her birth father from the family, so she enlisted the help of a friend of hers who was supposed to connect her with someone who knew her birth father. The friend ended up connecting Jennifer with two women who actually knew her birth mother. The women shared their teenage years with her mother and gave her bits and pieces from the recesses of their minds about who she was. But Jennifer kept hitting dead ends in her search for her paternal links. She realized the only way she could try to find the man was if she had some luck with DNA testing. She submitted her Ancestry DNA kit in May 2017, had her results by June, and connected with one of her birth father's relatives. The DNA doesn't lie, but Jennifer's fact-gathering mission also helped legitimize her story with them after she revealed the bits and pieces of information she had accumulated. Jennifer is very glad that they got to meet, and she's been very thankful for the reception she's gotten as a reflection of how the family felt about her birth father. I connected with uh, my birth father's first cousin by July. You know, he responded to an email, and sure enough, he was still in Chicago. He said, your dad was my first cousin and gave me all the background. So when I was in Chicago, the end of August, I got to meet him and an aunt and cousins, So I am totally in reunion with that side of the family. And he passed like 1990. Oh, he's been gone for a while. Yeah. What did they tell you about him? Well, they tell me that um, he lived a pretty rough life, you know, a pretty hard life. And that he didn't talk about me. So they didn't know anything about me. But you know what? I have been welcomed. I have been It makes me emotional how welcomed. And I think it speaks to, especially with my aunt, because his younger, my birth father's younger sister was really, really close with him, right? Mm. And she took care of him his last two years. And I think the reception that I have received from them, you know, like they don't know me, you know, but I think the reception is because of how they felt about him, you know, because they loved him so. Mm -hmm. So if this is his daughter, we're going to love her too, you know? Yeah, that's really great. It is really great. It's really great when people see things like that, you know? I wondered how Jennifer shared her journey with her 20-something-year-old son. She pointed out how differently his generation's opinions are about unwed pregnancy 
than those opinions that were held in the 1960s. Still, he was pretty nonchalant about the whole search, and it really didn't hit home for him until Jennifer's journey very clearly pointed out just what a small world it can be. You have a son, and you took this journey, you know, pretty much on your own. But tell me what kinds of things you're, you've said to your son or what kinds of, you know, emotions you've shared with him throughout this process. Well, you know, um, the start is when I first told him, you know, listen, this is what I'm going to do. And I'm not just doing it for me. I'm doing it for us. His um, opinion was very blasé. And it was like, you know, why, why, why do you care? Like they didn't want to keep you. And, and at first I thought, okay, I got to really explain this to him. And then I thought his generation, because he's 27, so his generation has come up in a very different time than in the 60s. You know, like like the shame of pregnancy and, you know, not being married is nothing today like it was then, you know. Mm-hmm. So my approach to him was that things were so different back then, you know, and so this whole um, idea of um, giving up a baby today sounds like ridiculous um, to you. But back then it wasn't like, it was just a different time. So mm-hmm. as we talked about, and we would, we talked, you know, he walked the, the whole road with me. And the more we talked about it, I think he saw the importance, but he really got it with the reunion. Mm-hmm. You know, he really got it because like one of your questions was, you know, what was most shocking and what was shocking to me was how close I had lived to my birth mother all this time. We had only been eight miles, about eight miles apart. Mm -hmm. And so with my brother, same thing. We had never, all these years, we had really been kind of traveling in the same circle, you know, in Chicago, the South side. Mm -hmm. And so it turns out that my brother's kids, and my son were crossing paths at this neighborhood park, like all through their childhood. Wow. And so when my son made that, he was like, he really got it. He was like, oh, this is, this is the big, this is big stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, cause you need to know who your, who your family is, who you're biologically related to on so many levels. That's so, amazing. Yeah. That's cool that he finally found a way to sort of understand, you know, the importance to you and the importance to him of this whole thing. And really how right. it's such a small world, too. You know, you 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 run across people and you'll look them in the face on the street and, and you have no idea who they are. Um, but the fact that you could pass people in the park, in your community and actually be related to you, that changes the dynamic of how you think of yourself in the world. Right. Exactly. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, it sounds like you really found peace in reunion and with adoption. And and I love the fact that you said, I wish I had joined the adoption community earlier because I think there's a lot of people you see online and Facebook and stuff like that, that every day more and more people are being welcomed into this community of folks who are trying to identify with both themselves as a person and their biological relation and to have other people around you that feel the same way, understand what you're going through and can be supportive is incredibly helpful for those of us who are trying to, you know, find what the next step is, the next piece of information, where to go next. Um, having people around you that can relate and say, he, you know, take it easy. We got you with this. 
here's what I would do is incredibly valuable. So um, I, I'm sorry that you missed your parents. You know, it must have been really hard to learn that they had both passed away. But to be able to, you know, reunite with the extended family sounds like it was a real blessing and and something that gave you some peace. So I'm I'm thankful for that for you. Yeah, I am too. I, I you know, I, I kind of prepared myself and I would urge any um, member of the adoption community to do some reading, you know, to find those books that are such valuable tools and resources for us. Because I had read about that that happens, you know, that birth parents have, you know, transitioned. And so it, it, it kind of softened, you know, my fall wasn't, it was kind of softened, yeah. you know, um, when I learned that. And then I was really concerned about the entire family. You know, like, yeah, it was true. I was looking for my birth mother, but I was interested in everybody else, too. Like, mm-hmm. right alongside her, you know, that was my thinking. Like, if I have siblings, I remember the sibling piece was really big to me, you know. Um, yeah. And I think because if my siblings had kids, these would be my son's first cousins. And see, I really was close with my first cousin. So I thought, this is cool, you know, that you really want to know those people. Yeah, fascinating. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for telling your story. Just do me a quick favor. Tell me, what is your website for your book? You've written a memoir about your experience, right? I did. It's called The Truth So Far, A Detective's uh, Search to Reunite with Her Birth Family. And it's uh, available on Amazon, and it's also available on my website, jenniferdianegoldston.com. Very good. Well, thank you so much for taking time to share your story. I mean, we all learn a lot from one another's journey, and I'm glad you were able to share yours, Jennifer. Thank you so much, Damon, and I'll be listening. I love your show. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. All the best to you, okay? Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, it's me. Jennifer really sounds thankful for the connection she's made to her maternal and paternal relatives, even though her parents were deceased when she found them. She unfortunately missed the chance to meet her parents before their passing, but she still got the heartwarming news that her mother had spoken of her throughout her life. On her father's side, it must have felt so good to step forward into their family, feel welcomed, and be able to accept the love they felt for her father as it enveloped her too because she is one of them. I'm Damon Davis, and I hope you'll find something in Jennifer's journey that inspires you, validates your feelings about wanting to search, or motivates you to have the strength along your journey to learn, who am I really? If you would like to share your story of locating and connecting to your biological family, visit whoamireallypodcast.com slash share. You can also find the show at facebook.com slash WAI Really, or follow me on Twitter at WAI Really. And please, if you like the show, take a moment to rate Who Am I Really on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts, or leave me a comment at whoamireallypodcast.com. Those ratings can help others find the show too.